Hello and welcome to the 90s Rave Podcast with me, Tom Latcham and Chrissy Richards. Today's guest is Top of the Pops and Nightfall's records breakbeat hardcore legend Lunacy, aka Chris Howe, who joins us from his home in North Carolina. Hello, Hello. mate, how's it going? It's going well, and you? Good, thank you. Did you like my accent? It was great. I don't do an American accent over here because I can only do a flamboyantly gay man American accent. That's fine. Can you do the whole interview in it, please? Well, if you want me to. <laughs> uh, we, we, so uh, for those who are, are, are listening on the podcast, to set the scene, it is the hottest day ever uh, on the history uh, of, of, of Earth. Uh, Chris is wearing a singlet uh, with his tattoos on show, studio in the background, skateboards as well in the background. Of course, you were a skateboarder, weren't you? Uh, semi-pro. I was. I was. I had to stop once I had children, though, because you injure yourself skateboarding. Like, it's a, just a guarantee. It's part of it. You can't skate and not injure yourself. No, well, I, I used to skateboard until I was about 18, and then I gave up because I kept hurting myself. And then I've sort of tried again recently. And But you're just... Ba- I've got a kid as well, and you're just aware of your own mortality, and it doesn't work. You know, you're doing going into every trick just terrified. Yeah. Yeah, you get older, and you think back to what you used to do. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't do a handrail now. Are you kidding me? Like... <laughs> No way! You got to be insane. Absolutely, never going to do that. But also, because there's only me and the wife here with the two kids, so if I'm out for the count, the wife has to do everything. And can you imagine what an earful I will get? Oh. Maybe it's worth doing. Is it like no. your kids will get into skateboarding? Do you reckon? Oh, I don't know. Like I look back now and I think with my parents and that they must have been terrified. Like I watch my, my kids like sit on my skateboard and go down the hill, and I'm like, oh my god, you're going to die! So like I don't, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> I kind of, like on the one hand, but that's that's part of being a parent though. Everything is. Like, Wilder climbs on everything. And on the one hand, I'm like, brilliant, that's so good that you can do that. And on the other hand, I'm like, please stop doing that, you're going to die. And that's just every every experience always. You got one child or two? I got two kids. Wilder's four and Phoenix is two. Do your kids like the music that you make? I've been a bit crap introducing them to it, honestly. Uh, we bought phoenix a keyboard because he likes making a lot of noise and he broke that within four hours i think uh we had one of those little mic things and wilder just shouted yo 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 i want to go to the new park for about an hour and then that got broken and they don't come in the studio because they immediately rush in and press buttons and start hitting things and covering it with sticky stuff because kids just have sticky stuff coming out of them all times so i guess i'm a bit neglectful but i don't really know (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if they like it or not they do like music, and for we, when we um, were first working with High Point Experience, he sent me a track and I played it, and Phoenix started dancing around to it, so I've got that as a, a video. I'm not sure that counts as like, because I think when we turned it off, he just carried on dancing around. <laughs> you don't know with kids. Uh, well, we didn't uh, get you on to, 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 to normally talk about your kids or about your skateboarding. We, oh, no, we, of course. We've Sorry. got you on because you are... No, 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 it's actually fun. But you are, uh, of course, the, the man behind the longest-running record label in hardcore you proudly say that on all your social media channels it's night force uh, let's start there uh, i'm interested to know about how it came about it seemed to come back accidentally much like this podcast really in a way is that fair yeah but then that's pretty much my life i don't like i've never had a plan for anything ever i'm not a, a planner i kind of have a vague instinct of where i want to head and then i just stubbornly do that until i get there and that's about it. Um, Night Force came about mainly because my friends wanted to make music and Suburban Bass had plenty of artists and they were doing, you know, it, it was hard to get studio time with Austin. And also Suburban Bass didn't really want to give Austin to us as an engineer because why would they, you know? So I was like, bollocks, I got some money now from Smarties. I'll buy some studio and I'll learn it myself in my ignorance. 
<laughs> thinking that I could just go, oh, now I understand sampling. <laughs> so actually, the studio sat there for about six months, getting dusty. Because like, like any man, I refused to read the instruction manuals and just expected to know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so your early vision for Night Force was that you wanted it to be stylistic and anarchistic. Would you say that that is still the case? Is that carried throughout? or? I honestly think that I was mostly moulded by skateboarding and I've retained the exact attitude of a skateboarder ever since, which is nothing is sacred, nothing is serious, um, everything is up for grabs. And if you do something well, fuck about until you've ruined it and do something else. <laughs> <laughs> does, Chris, does, um, does skateboarding, because I haven't skateboarded for, for some time and I, and I still watch videos and, and it's, it's much more higher profile and there is more money in skateboarding. And equally, there is much more money in music. Um, is skateboarding still like that? And, 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 is, and is it able, are you able to fit your music into that world of, of rampant commercialism and capitalism? That's a difficult question because I am no longer involved as a skateboarder on that level. I'm still a skateboarder from like 1987 to 1990. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm an old skateboarder with that attitude. And I feel there's a, with almost everything, whether you're talking about music or like raves is another example, or even commercial airlines, there's a peak where no one really knows what they're doing. And that's the best time. Like, if you go back to when aeroplanes were first being built, you get all these insane planes with, like, 15 wings, and they fly backwards and forwards, and they've got the cockpit hanging at the bottom of it, and propellers in the wrong place, because no one really knew what they were doing. Um, With the result that you've got this absolutely fascinating mixture of planes to look at. Now, everyone knows how how to make a plane, and it's completely boring. Every single one you see is like... And it's the same with cars. You look at cars, there was a peak time when they were all really interesting, lots of different shapes and styles, and now they all look less like a bubble with wheels. Skateboarding <laughs> is the same. When we started, we no one knew what they were doing, so you got all these mental shapes and sizes and stuff, um, and so you ended up with a really interesting, vibrant scene, and now all skateboards are exactly the same shape. And it's definitely a better shape. Planes are better, cars are better, skateboards are better, but it's also completely boring. And if you look at the rave scene, again, the early rave scene, no one knew what they were doing. People just got samplers and stuff and stuck everything together. And you can listen to old school hardcore from like 89 to 94. And it's just mental. You listen to it, you think, why would anyone do that? Why is that sample there? Because they didn't know what they were doing. Nowadays, everyone knows what they're doing. And the result is it's kind of boring. Do you deliberately then, with your releases now... And, uh, you know, the idea that you started as an anarchic as possible and stylistic and all that sort of stuff. Do you continue, try to continue that now to make yourself stand out? And is that why you think you've got such a dedicated following? I do try. There's a quote from Brian Eno that I think of quite a lot. And he says, whatever worked last time, don't do that again. And I think that's a really important quote because I learned with Remix Records, we, we started that as a label for Jimmy J. And Jimmy J was wonderful in many ways, but he wasn't the most imaginative when it came to music. What he wanted was music that worked on the dance floor. So we quickly came to a very solid formula, which works very well on the dance floor. And if you listen to Remix Records, it starts off one way and it stays exactly the same all the way through and then it dies because it's boring. Like you can't, you can't keep doing the same thing over and again with any music thing. So I learned a lesson there. You can't just do that. And it, it, it's like a lesson that no one learns. It, we just keep doing it and keep doing it. You see it with pop acts. They have a big successful tune. The next tune is exactly the same and doesn't sell very well. Look at Smarties and Lose Control, for example. <laughs> kind of the same, but much worse. You know what I mean? 
and it's just boring and then people stop buying it. So one of the things I try to keep with Night Force is to, one, remember that I don't know anything. People always think, oh, I know exactly what will sell. You don't know what will sell. No one knows what will sell. You too know what will sell. Madonna knows what will sell. Jay-Z knows what will sell. There's about eight people in the world that know what will sell and everybody else is just guessing, basically. (laughs) So it's always important to remember you have no idea. And then you just try to embrace the fact that you don't know things and to not do the same things round and round. And do you think then it's like you seem to embrace change a lot. You're not set a certain way. You just go with the flow. Do you think the reason that hardcore is essentially dead in many ways is because not enough people embrace change and sort of fly by the seat of their pants and just do whatever feels right at the time sort of thing? Uh, I think that's part of it. I think there's a number of reasons why hardcore is in such a terrible state. I'm actually writing a another book that I hope to be finished real soon um, called The Rave Commandments, which sounds really arrogant, but it's about things we need to do to make the scene work again. And a lot of it is looking back at the old school way of doing things. And it's things like, one of the reasons hardcore is so dead now is that there's no money in it. And one of the reasons there's no money in it is the digital side. There's no money in digital sales. That's, you know. And if you've got no money then the people who are professional and know what they're doing musically, they can't stay in that scene. They have to leave. So with hardcore, you've seen a steady exodus of all the talent for the last 15 to 20 years. People making a record. They love the music, but they spend a month making an EP and they put it out and they sell four copies and get 20 cents for it and say, well, I I can't live like that. So they either have to go and get a normal job or work in a scene which will actually pay them. And the result is hardcore is basically a scene of a few dedicated people who have money from other sources and hobbyists. And if you have that, you don't really have a music scene. You just have a hobby. And there's nothing wrong with a hobby. There's nothing bad about that. But you simply can't grow from that because it's no, no one's got commitment to it. I think that that's a, a reasonable summation. I think that's actually... A, a, I'm a journalist, a newspaper journalist, and I think that there is a... a, a a, a real mirroring of that in journalism it's becoming less possible to be a journalist um because it's just not able you're not able to monetize it. and it's a question that i talk about a lot uh, about how you monetize journalism because it's important to monetize journalism but in terms of how you monetize hardcore now you know with your rave commandments book what do you do what do, how do we do it it's difficult it's tom's, very difficult tom's like... trying to get a sneaky peek out of your book there you see <laughs> I can send him some. It's not finished yet. But... <laughs> I'll help um, you. I've, I've, I've only got three of the commandments, it. and then it's like, thou shalt go back to sleep. <laughs> thou shalt clean up Phoenix's vomit is one of the most common ones. <laughs> I don't know. That's one of the problems. But what I do know is uh, we can't carry on doing what we're doing. That's insanity. It doesn't work. And there are some things that work for some music. Like, we started doing vinyl uh, and doing it seriously again about two or three years ago. And at first, it was one record or two records every three months. Currently, I think we have 27 records being pressed and cut at the moment because there's a real demand for it. And because the result of it is... like, Let me let me give you an example. One of my all-time heroes, one of the biggest influences on my music, somebody I've admired for my entire career, is Hyperon Experience. They, they made technical, beautiful, stunningly clever hardcore. It wasn't the most popular. It didn't sell the most. But I just thought it was so far above everyone else. They were like Mozart and everybody else was just like hitting the keyboard, you know. And when I saw that he was online, I wanted to see if I could get a remix from him, which is, you know, for me, that's like, oh, my God, you know, what I mean, like a total hero worship. 
But he runs a, a music studio and he's got a professional job and he can't stop and do a remix for me, for me just to go, thanks, buddy. Like, he has to get paid. And it's not that he doesn't love the music. Of course he loves the music, but he has to get paid. He's got a kid. He's got a life, you know. To be able to pay him, I have to have income from the remix. Now, when you sell a vinyl record at this current time, you can make really good or, you know, at least a decent profit from selling a uh, vinyl record at this time, you know. Like, it's not much, but it's not bad either. Enough that I could pay him a solid remix fee so he could do the work. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, you see, because... I've been able to pay him to do the work. So now we can put out a vinyl record which makes money. So now I've got enough money to say to Sublove, will you do some remixes for me? And can we release some of your back catalogue? And here's an advance. And so few people have had advance. I haven't seen an advance on, on anything in the music industry since like 98 or 99. Because there isn't any money in it. But with selling vinyl, there actually is a little bit of money in it. And so, of course, Sublove, who does Way Out West and is doing all that other stuff, said, oh, yeah, in my downtime, I'll be happy to do that. So he does that, and I get to sell it, and then I make some extra money, and then I can speak to NRG or ASIN or other bigger names who are professionals and know what they're doing with the music and say, this is worth your while. This is You get to do the music you love, and you get to be paid. You know, which is all, all anyone wants, all any craftsman of any type, any artist. They, no, no artist I've ever known, no true artist has ever been motivated by money. But you have to eat. Mm. So all of us want what we would love most of all is to make the art we like and get paid. Now, with digital sales, you can't do it. You just can't. I, I did, um, I've had so many things go on to digital sales and you just get a pittance. Like I was in the charts with one of my tracks, like the Track It Down charts and that. I had three different mixes in three of their charts and I earned $35. I can't justify a month's work for $35. No one can. So it sounds to me as though what you're suggesting is that there needs to be some sort of community spirit uh, among producers and, and, and record creators. It, do you think that that's what Drum and Bass and Jungle has done well over the last 20, 25 years that Hardcore has done abysmally? It's a difficult one, the difference between those two scenes. I think Hardcore had a lot more um, greedy opportunists, honestly. I think a lot more people in hardcore did not have any um, thought about the future. They just were too busy lining their pockets now. Part of the trouble was hardcore lost its identity when it went to doing all the kick drum stuff. Um, There's nothing wrong with kick drums. I love a good kick drum in a track, but it tried to merge with the Euro scene and the Euro scene didn't need it. The Euro scene was already doing quite well, thank you very much. And drum and bass, so drum and bass had its own distinct sound and the Euro techno kick drum stuff had its own distinct sound and UK hardcore had its own distinct sound, except it threw it out the window and tried to do the Euro hardcore and then it just became a mess and there wasn't a distinct sound anymore. So it just shrunk. I mean, you could analyse so many different aspects of hardcore to find out why it went wrong and I don't think you'd ever find one single thing more just like, a lot of little things that didn't help. I don't think it's community, though, because I don't think the, the drum and bass people love to present a unified community. But I know plenty of them have beefs with each other and there's all sorts of politics going on in the background. It's just every music scene's like that. That's just people. So I'm not really big, even with what I'm doing now. Like, I'm trying to get other labels to work together, but I'm not stupid enough to think they're going to do it because they're nice. They are nice, but you've got to look after yourself first, and that's okay. So the way I'm doing it now is I'm saying, here's a way I can make you some extra money. 
let's work together a bit. And that seems to work a lot better because once it's in everybody's interest to work together, they do. But you can't expect them to do you a favour or go out of their way to help you because why should they? And why should I? Do you know what I mean? Like, like that's something that comes from friendship and trust over years, not something that comes out of business. That can come out of business years later. But to initially get a good group of people to all work in the same direction, it has to be both convenient and profitable. Don't forget you can email us or send us your shouts or questions to hello at the 90s rave podcast.co.uk. We're still here on the 90s Ray podcast uh, with Lunacy. He's the breakbeat night force legend. And he's famed for making some of the biggest happy hardcore breakbeat tracks during the mid-90s, many of which have absolutely stood the test of time. We still love listening to them to this very day. Uh, Chris Howell, Lunacy, what is it for you that makes a great producer? I don't know. Apart from I, I flying don't... by the seat of your pants, of course. <laughs> I, don't, I, I Honestly, I don't know. I, I think... Yeah, that's hard to say because there's so many great producers and they're very different. Like Scott Brown is a great producer and he's very different to Hyperon Experience. Uh, I think I think maybe it's a, a willingness to do what's good rather than what's popular. I'm not sure exactly, but I feel like the really good producers just do the stuff that they like and that sounds good. It doesn't always work. Um, you know, like some, some producers are... A good, a good example would be Mathis, the panacea. He's a producer who's always about two years ahead of everyone else. So he, whatever he's doing now, everybody else is doing two years later. And by the time they're doing it, he's doing something else with the result that he's never really got the fame or credit he deserves within the scene he's in because he's so far ahead of the curve. But he doesn't really care because his interest is in doing the thing he wants to do. So that makes a great producer, I think. Maybe not a successful producer, although Mathis is successful, but you see what I'm getting at. <laughs> So what's your process of making tracks? Do you have or do you have a process? Is it whatever you feel like doing on the day? And how does that differ to other producers? I don't know how other producers work. I tend to have always worked on my own. I've very rarely been in another studio with anybody else. Partly because I always feel at a disadvantage because I've never... Like, for example, I work with uh, someone who was very musically talented and they were like, oh, you know, that's a D minor. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. You know, or they'll be like, you need the frequency of the bass to be this. And I'll be like, I, I, I have no idea what that is. I just do this. But it sounds good. And I'm like, that's good. You know? <laughs> like, I, know, I, know what so- I know what sounds good. But if you want me to tell you what key it's in, nope. I can, comp- <laughs> I, I can compose a good piano. But you stick me in front of a piano to play. And I'm like, do, 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 do. Well, you know, on, like- on that, Chris, you, 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 you read in your book, it, when you started Night Force, you, you didn't know how to make music. As you mentioned, it just gathered dust at your studio yeah. in, in your room. But you, but you did teach yourself pretty quickly by reading the book. How easy is it for someone who wants to start making music? How easy is it to do so? Can, can anyone do it? I think anyone can get the tools just as anyone can build a house. Whether you can build the house well is a different thing. Like, there are a lot of things to help you nowadays that we didn't have. Like, you've got the internet. You can go onto YouTube and see how to make a bass line exactly like Shimon has in his latest track. You can go and find out how to edit breakbeats and that. Um, and part of me thinks that's actually a disadvantage and one of the reasons a lot of modern music is so boring because, again, everyone goes to the same source and does the same thing and you end up with the same sound and it's boring. Like, if I had to recommend things for new producers, my first thing would be don't download any sample packs. Don't bother. If there's a really popular VST, don't get that because everybody's doing that. 
If you want to sound like everybody else, fine. But no one has ever gone like, that's the best thing that sounds like the best thing I've ever heard. Like, you know, it's, you know, if you want to sound like Pendulum, that's fine. But Pendulum already did that. So what's the point of that? I don't understand it really. But then I've been told I, I'm a bit strange. So maybe it's just me. Well, you used to create rave music in a very DIY way, and I suppose that's why it all sounds so different and fresh, and that's your that's your style. Do you think that the art of creativity has been lost uh, in that world of technology, where you know samples and beats, you've got your sample packs, etc. Uh, they often come already created, and copyright infringement is picked up far more easily. I think uh, good art requires restriction. I think everybody's got everything at their fingertips, and so. Like another, I'm sorry to always use um, examples that are a bit weird, but for me, it's like I used to go to Blockbuster and choose a video, and you'd go into the store and you'd be like, "Which video should I watch?" And you'd have a choice of thirty, and you'd choose a video, and then you'd come out and you'd watch the film. Now I go to Netflix, scroll through seven hundred things, and turn it off and don't watch anything. And I think it's the same with music. You can, um, if you have everything at your fingertips, you end up doing nothing or at least nothing interesting, because you need the restrictions to force you to create. That, that's just the way I think of it. I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't think there's any one rule. I don't think you can say this is how to do it. When it comes to art, whatever works for you is what works for you. But I do think restrictions equal creativity. And so with that in mind, I often restrict myself to how I do things because it forces me to do stuff that I wouldn't have otherwise done. Um, I know a lot of the older producers I talk to are the same way. A perfect example of one of the modern producers that does it is Pete Cannon. He works on a S950 and an Amiga and an Octobed, and all of those things are horribly difficult to work with compared to modern doors. You know, if you want to edit a sample on an S950, well, sit down. You're going to be there for a while, you know? But the result is you have limited sample space. You have a limited sound. So you have to get innovative with how you do things. And you listen to his stuff, and it's fantastic. And then you see other people who have got $10,000 worth of VSTs and stuff and they bring out a perfectly clean, beautiful piece of music. It's so boring. It's just the most boring thing you've ever heard. So for me, I think I think restrictions are important. You you can either self-impose them or have them anywhere. You listen to The Prodigy and their early stuff, it's done on two keyboards. Well, we've uh, got Paul Kingsize, producer here. He's, setting, he's got his own record label. He's uh, he's producing all sorts of stuff. What do you make of, of what Chris says? You know, you're the producer, you're the other producer in the room here. Uh, yeah, I mean, back in the day when I when I first got my um, first studio, uh, we we was limited. We had a Akai S two thousand eight hundred, and that was it. We didn't even have a mixing desk, and we used to actually do any kind of EQ and volumes actually in the sampler. And the exactly, stuff, the stuff that we came out with was was actually all right. To be honest with you, it was actually <laughs> it was okay because you were forced to make it work. You were forced to be experimental. You were forced to try new things. I, 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 and like you say, Chris, I look now at just the VSTs that people could just download online and instantly have thousands and thousands of sounds. Yeah, I think I think people see that the software and the but yeah, they see the software is creating music for them rather than that they have a really good idea and then they, they make that thing that they're thinking of. They expect it all yeah. to sort of be done for them. I should say, actually, yeah. by the way, I apologise because Chris is a producer as well. Chrissy Manick is a producer as well. I'm the only one in the room that isn't a producer. <laughs> I, I have used also an Akai sampler, by the way. I went to a music tech course and I remember how much fun. It's so much more fun using old equipment than it is just sitting at a computer anyway. I actually got so bored of VSTs. I almost quit music because of it. 
Like I found it so tedious to just fiddle around with stuff on the screen and so unemotional. Nowadays, I'm almost entirely hardware. My studio is all hardware. I still use a door, but I'm on Cubase 4 and I've got no interest in getting Cubase 807 or whatever we're on. I'm quite happy with the restrictions I've got on Cubase. And frankly, I can't see it. If I found something I needed, then I would update, but there's nothing I need. I use all hardware because it's a pain in the ass, but it's... um, I don't know. There's a, there's an instinct. Like if I if I want to get a certain sound, again, the same as I am with the keyboard. I look at some of the bits of kit I've got, and I couldn't tell you what every button does, but I do know what they do. I know what I'm doing by like I don't think about it. I just fiddle around, and sometimes it goes horribly wrong, just like it did back in the day. Paul will tell you from working in those days, you could make a whole track and spend all day on it and get it just right, and poof, it crashed and it's all gone. There wasn't an auto save. If you didn't remember to save, that was that. You know. Yeah, I can I can actually remember um like oh ninety seven, ninety eight coming to your studio, Chris, and um making some when I was running that drum and bass label Dimension Four whilst, which was while she was doing influential. And yeah. we um we had two days booked, me and Paul, and we came down and we uh we basically had a track pretty much done apart from the mix down, but then overnight I think was it your was it your Nord lead or something like that crashed and we lost the yeah. bass line. And um the next day we tried recreating it and yeah, it was gone. That was it. We had- you never can. You that never shoot. can. You can never get it the same. It, yeah. it's, it's, but again, I think that's part of the blessing of it. Like you want an individual sound, you, you kind of need unreliable stuff. Because if it's always going to be back the next day, like say we had a save that bass noise and it was there, would we have used it on another track? Yeah, we would have. Probably another three <laughs> tracks. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then what you've got is a load of records that all sound the same. Which is exactly what happens now, and that's you know there's something to be said for impermanence, which is what I said again. What Brian Eno said: whatever worked last time, don't do that again, because that's the way to end your musical inspiration. And another one I would add to that is if you've got a format, throw it in the trash. Format is the death of music. As soon as you say this is how this is the structure, then you're you're finished. Generally, you say you work by yourself, but is there anyone that you have worked with that you really wish you hadn't? Yes. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you look through my discography, almost anything I cut, I release. And if you find one that I haven't released after cutting it, then you'll know that I didn't want to work with that person, <laughs> won't you? Well, <laughs> Paul Size is our resident uh, music nerd. Can, do you know any of these? Oh, on this Paul. Well, if I was to say a catalogue number, Chris, would you be, be willing to say yes or no? Yeah. Uh, no, this is super geeky. Oh, come on, do it. Breed 002? Yeah. <laughs> but, that was that, but that was because I just found I, I just found his manner offensive. And listen, that doesn't mean he's a bad person. It just means I didn't get on with him. Who was it, Paul? It was DJ Demo. <laughs> oh, dear. Ah. Oh, dear. See, the whole, the whole thing with that is a lot of people run into issues with me because they, they come from a fundamental misunderstanding of how I work. They think that I want to sell a lot of records and that that's my priority. <laughs> you think but that's not you my better. priority. My priority is to have a good time. And so my priority is have a good time, make music, sell records. So if right at the beginning you're the best DJ in the world and I'm not having a good time, then we're not doing anything because I don't want to have a bad time. Like, why would I do that? I mean, also, we should say, if anyone wants to sell lots of records, they should probably not make hardcore. Uh, I don't well, think it... yeah, that's another thing as well. <laughs> you know? I would just like to clarify, though, because in case Mark Demo listens to this, it's not even a personal grudge. I don't really do personal grudges because I don't care about people that much. 
I didn't really get on with Demo, and that's okay. He did his own thing. He's done a bunch of music that sold well. Nice for him. I don't have any grief with him whatsoever. I just didn't get on with him, so I left it at that. Uh, you're listening to uh, Lunacy, the Night Force legend here on the 90s Ray podcast with me, Tom Latcham and Chrissy Richards. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, a shout or a memory uh, about Lunacy or anything in the 90s rave scene, get in touch. Hello at the 90s Ray podcast.co.uk. This is Raw, the 90s rave podcast. We hope you're enjoying listening to them as much as we enjoy making them. But now here comes the money bit. We are three average people with expensive children and busy lives. We would love to continue bringing you more epic 90s rave content, but we need your help in order to do this. We've set up a GoFundMe page and you could become a part of this fantastic and exciting project documenting the 90s for less than the price of a posh local bread. Head on over to GoFundMe.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast and help us to make history. Uh, you're listening to the 90s rave podcast with Chrissy Richards and Tom Latcham. We have a very special guest from North Carolina, Chris Lunacy. We have a feature for you. This was our mastermind and you said Stephen King books, which made me very happy, I I have to say. Well, I I was very nervous about even suggesting it because one, I'm certainly not a mastermind and two, I think you know more than me. I was trying to think of subjects. I was going to say hardcore and I was like, oh, fucking Paul will start saying things like, what was Moving Shadow 372? I don't know. (laughs) Well, I I should say to you, Chris, I'm sorry to break it to you, but I'm staring at a bookcase full of Stephen King books so uh, this, this probably was well, it was, it was unwise this one well I know I knew it was unwise and I've read every book except for Ride the Bullet because every time I look at it I just think that doesn't look like an interesting book and I've read everything he's done ever but that doesn't make you a mastermind that makes someone who's read some books so we will see I should have done it on It the new It movie yeah because that was that was really good <laughs> that would have made it? you have to watch it <laughs> question number one complete the following sentence he thrusts his fists Against the post until he thinks he sees the ghost. Very good. Uh, Number two, what is a night knocker? Shit. I I know that book as well, but I honestly can't remember. Oh, wait, wait. Isn't that the policeman guy who goes around checking things? Yeah, that was in the new book. Yep, you're right. Absolutely right. What is the full name of the town, Salem's Lot? Jerusalem's Lot. Very good. Uh, From which book is this quote? History doesn't repeat itself, but it harmonises... And what it usually makes is the devil's music. I'm guessing it's the one about J, JFK, but I can never remember the title. Like, whenever I want to tell anyone about it, I'm like, it's a date. There's some numbers in it. I don't know, 114267 or something. I don't know. <laughs> you can, it's 112263, but you can have that. You said it was the book about JFK. So. so question number five. Can you name all the little bald doctors from Insomnia? There were three. No, I can't name any of them. I only read that once and I didn't like it much. No, see, neither did Paul, but I really love Insomnia. Um, They were Atropos, Clotho and Lachesis. Number six, which book featured a creepy lawn jockey? Um, I don't even know what a lawn jockey is. I'm going to go with Lawnmower Man because they've both got the word lawn in them, (laughs) but that's all I've got. Uh, unfortunately not it is Duma Key I should say by the way I've never read a Stephen King novel myself. I love Duma Key that was one of my favourites I don't remember don't a lawn remember jockey, lawn What's jockey? but I don't know what a lawn jockey it's is like a, it's an ornament that people keep in their gardens it's like a man usually a black man and it's quite they look quite creepy they're very old ancient weird things so question number seven what is the dead zone isn't it the place where the I can't remember the protagonist's name goes I can't remember the protagonist's name in the book, but isn't it his um, 
the place where his mind goes when something's happening. Sorry, that's probably not very clear. I haven't read that one for a decade. You can, you can. Just give it half a point there. It's basically it's the it's the part of his brain that he can't access due to his accident. So things he forgets, that's he says right. that they're in the dead zone. But you, you were almost there. Number eight. What is the name of the strange creature that haunts the woods in Pet Cemetery? No, I, I haven't read that for over twenty years, so I don't remember that at all. I don't remember the Wendigo. Yeah, it's the Wendigo guy. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you broke up. Ding. <laughs> You broke up there. I didn't catch that. Yes, it's the Wendigo. Another point for me. Well done, Chris. I, I'm just <laughs> going to jump in there. You said you haven't read it for 20 years, Chris. I, see, I read that pre-being a parent, and now it's a very hard book to read. Oh, I found that with It. When I went to see the first, I know you don't like the new It movie, but when I went to see it, I was like, oh, It's one of my favourite books. I love it. And then watching that kid get his arm torn off, I was like, I can't Because <laughs> I had totally forgotten. I totally Because you don't realise, do you? You become a parent. But that bit is compartmentalised in your head. So you just carry on liking the same things. And then it comes out of nowhere and you're like, oh my God, what's going to happen to that kid? Like, it caught me totally unaware and I hated it. That was, th- that was the only bit like, I really liked in it, I have to say. Well, you're a bit strange. <laughs> <laughs> Question number nine. Who is Donald Merwin Elbert? No, I've got nothing on that either. He, uh, he's the trash can man from The Stand. Oh, yeah, I just remembered him as a trash can man. I couldn't remember his real name. That's a good book. And uh, finally, number 10, why is the Green Mile called the Green Mile? Oh, that's just the uh, death row thing, and they've got a green floor, which you have to walk to the um, electric chair. Perfect. Bang on. Very good. I, you know, you did okay at that. I think you got five and a half, I think, out of ten. That's pretty yeah. decent. Yeah. Given how many, how many books has he written? Oh, thinking. tons. 5,000. Well done. I mean, that's pretty good, Chris. Hooray. All right, so we had Slipmat on last week talking about his SMDs. Um, what was it about those records that changed the future of hardcore, do you think? Um, the professional way he made them. He cut the records, played them on dub, decided if they were working or not, edited them, cut another dub. He took time and care to get those records right. So that was the main thing. Um, the timing. It was right at the border when there was a split starting to happen between drum and bass and hardcore. And he was exactly on point with the timing. And the formula. While I'm not for formula, SMD pretty much dictated the formula for Happy Hardcore for the next couple of years. And if everybody had have ignored that formula, we would have been in a much better position. Slipmat doing it was fine. Everybody else doing it, including me. I'm not, I'm not saying I, I, I was above it. We did it too. You know, that it was a touchstone record where people said, okay, if you want to make a good hardcore tune, breakbeat intro, piano drop, more beats, maybe a vocal, stab pattern drop, time stretches, back to the piano, breakbeat outro finished. And it was lovely. It was the perfect format and it was absolutely excellent. And as I've said before, give it a couple of months. It got so boring. Everyone was sick of it. But SMD honed that to perfection. They made it. They, they were the ones that got the skateboard into that right shape. Or the aeroplane into that right shape so that it could fly through and do exactly what it needed to do on the dance floor. Uh, and in terms of uh, what you like, it's clear that you, you were making hardcore at a time where you, you could have gone into jungle and, and continued down that breakbeat route. You could have gone down the more happy hardcore route. But you, it's quite clear that you really liked ha- the happier side of the music. What was it in particular that you loved so much about that happy sound? That's actually not true. I would much rather have done um, techno like R&S 
that was the thing that I really liked. I loved all the bleeps and the basses. I loved all things like Joey Beltram and all that sort of style. I absolutely loved that. And I loved the darker side of things as well. Um, unfortunately, I ended up making Sesame Street, didn't I? <laughs> so it, it was kind of... Um, like I, I like the happy piano stuff. I've never liked cheese particularly. I like Euphoria. I don't really like over-the-top cheese. Um, and if you look at the music I've made personally... Uh, I don't think I've made that much cheese. There's been the occasional awful things like the La La song, but that was done at a very bad time in my life. Um, mostly the stuff I've made the cheesiest might be Six Days or Take Me Away, but even those I would say weren't overly cheesy. They I never, were definitely I ne- happy. I should say, Chris, I never said cheesy. I, I said the happier side. I know. It's that euphoric I know, side I know, of things. I, I know what you mean, but I wanted to draw a line between the two because there's quite a big difference between, say, Take Me Away and Toy Town. I'm not, dis- I'm not dissing Toy Town. It was great for what it was. And again, if everyone hadn't copied it, it would have been fine. Um, but I just kind of ended up there. Like, the-, the scene was so strange back then. There was no... Like, you had SMD coming out, but I distinctly remember in the early days of Night Force when we were playing record, we'd be playing, like, Dark Horse or Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse or Moving Shadow Oasis, but we would also be playing Vibes and Wish Doctor and Rank Records and, you know, Slamming Vinyl. There was no, like, at the time, there was no conscious decision to say, we're going to do piano stuff. And you can even hear that with the first releases on the label from KF1 to 20, the first 20 releases. We are all over the map. We have happy tunes from Force and Evolution. We have dark stuff on there. It just kind of. I don't know, it just kind of ended up that way. It wasn't a plan, it just ended up that way, and so that's what we did. If I could go back now, well, I'd probably do the same thing because I'd be me back then, wouldn't I? But if I, if I could go back and change it, I would probably be more aware of the diversity that I could have promoted. I'm just going to come in there, Chris. You said that you was all over the map with the first 20 Night Forces. Uh, I've got to agree, I was a massive, massive fan of the dark stuff throughout sort of late 92 and 93. And I can honestly say that Night Force 7, the snowball, was probably yeah. probably the darkest tune for me. Yeah, I mean, that was deliberate. <laughs> yeah, well it, well, it achieved what it set out to achieve, that's for sure. Yeah, we tried to make something as dark and ridiculous as possible, <laughs> even down to the fact that we tried to do every gimmick possible. We'll do a white label, 10-inch, with no actual label on it one-sided that's just horribly horribly dark so but i again i I'm, I'm attracted to that sort of thing i like to find the very extreme of something and go okay i've done that what else can we do but your happier tunes did t- tend to fare better than the darker tunes is is that fair and if that is the case why do you think that was timing i i couldn't say exactly night force really didn't get on its feet properly until we had slip mat remix take me away and- and then everything blew up really huge. I don't know. I, I, I think it was just the timing of it. It was just the way the scene was. We just happened to be, like SMD was the right track at the right time, Night Force just happened to be the right sound at the right time. You know, we, we had lent towards that piano stuff and we were trying to find our formula. And I had some artists that were spectacularly good. I had DJ Force and the Evolution, who, you know, obviously Darren Styles has gone into to be massive, but uh, DJ Force likewise. Uh, they were very talented piano players. You know, what you, they would play those pianos that you heard on the records at that speed. You know, they were just very, very good at it. Future Primitive were the same way. They went out of their way to learn. Neither of them could play anything. They went out of their way to learn to play 
to get piano lines like they're heroes. And while other labels did a bit of everything, Nightforce just kind of ended up specialising in that particular sound. So that's probably why it was the people involved. I mean, I, I liked it too and was happy to go with it. It wasn't like I was going, oh, no, not another piano track. You know, I, I loved it as much as everybody else. But it was also not a conscious decision so much as that's the way it was flowing. And I just went with it because that's what we were doing. So, Chris, of all of the tracks you've made, which would you say you are the proudest of, of making? Uh, maybe My Angel. That's uh, on KFA. Mainly because that's one of the few records I've made that absolutely doesn't fit into any category, really. It's not quite hardcore. It's not quite jungle. It's not quite drum and bass. It's sort of all those things. Um it was also made at a time where I was grieving because my father had passed. So while that doesn't have resonance for me as far as the music goes, I think maybe my mind was in a slightly unusual place and so I ended up making a slightly unusual track. How, how, mu- how much do external influences influence your creativity? In that, it's, uh, uh, We're using that as an example. Hard to say. The reason I say that is because uh, I realised a few years ago that I suffer from depression, but I didn't know I suffered from depression for most of that time. Like now when I look back, I can say, oh, look, 96 and 97 is when I sank into a horrible depressive fit and the whole label fell to pieces. And I thought it was just the label going wrong, but really it was me going wrong because I couldn't function that way anymore. And I couldn't make that music. I couldn't sit down and make a big piano anthem because I felt like shit, you know, so it wasn't something I could do. Having said that, another source of power in creativity is pain. You go to any of the big musicians over the years and you see most of them start off fucking miserable. Do you know what I mean? Like you you look at the Rolling Stones or Bob Dylan or Nine Inch Nails or you you name it, Salvador Dali or whatever. They're miserable people and art is a way to express your misery and get your way out of the misery. And then what often happens, one of two things happens. They either, like Nirvana, carry on being miserable and kill themselves or they (laughs) they get better and make shit art. You know what I mean? You end up with Bob Dylan's new stuff, which I'm sure is musically talented, but no one cares. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, and I'm not, I don't mean that as a diss. I just think that all the great art, whether you're talking about comedians or filmmakers, I think most of it comes from pain. And art is a way to alleviate that pain. Um, and if you get better, you no longer have access to that pain to make good art. And so you're a better person but you're not as good an artist. So what you're and saying, me, Chris, is your, your art is now not very good because you're not depressed anymore. That is a thing. That's, I'm not, you joke, but I honestly think about that. I think about that quite seriously because one of the things I found was you become addicted to that pain. When I realised I had a problem, I had to genuinely decide, do I fix that? Because if I fix it, am I, not, am I still going to be able to do the art the way I want to do it? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think I found a balance. There's a line in a Hosier song that says, um, never tame your demons, always keep them on a leash. And I think that's the way you have to do it as an artist. I think you have to... um, I have never tried to fix my problems. I'm just aware of them and I manage them. And I don't actually want them fixed because I think if I fix them, I lose my source of power with doing other things. You you might end up making really cheesy hardcore if you have them fixed and you're just permanently happy and then we get all of the, yes. Yeah, I think we've, got, I I think we've got, got enough of that, to be honest. I don't think we need any and more, I do wonder. I, I do wonder how much pain went into Toy Town. 
Not a lot. Not a lot, I think. It caused you know, a lot of pain, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well, maybe. Well, maybe. It, it's, you know. I don't like to diss Toy Town because it was a very original track and it almost came out on Night Force. Originally, Hixie played it to me and I was like, I'll put that out. And he was like, no, you won't. It's going on Essential Platinum. And I was like, all right, fair enough. Didn't care that much because I don't. I, with me, I'm like, if I can have it, great. If I can't, that's fine. I, I don't cry about it. It's all good. Um, and I liked Hixie and I liked the record and it was very original. So I don't like to diss it, even though I don't especially like it. But that's just personal taste. That doesn't make it bad. It's such a fascinating insight into uh, the making of music. Can I just ask, uh, we're going to come on to a, a feature we run called Tune 101 recently, where we're going to ask you for three hardcore uh, or rave tracks that, that you absolutely hate and want to go in the bin. Before we do that, what tracks have you loved that weren't on Night Force? Instantly, I think of um, Jackazid, Still It Bang. I think Jackazid is one of the most talented and underrated producers in the whole of hardcore. And as soon as I heard Still It Bang, I was like, that is exactly the sort of idiocy that we are excellent at. <laughs> like, that is such a stupid... What, what I really like, and I like it about the internet and I like it in life, is things that are massively clever and utterly stupid and pointless. Like, I love it when people put an immense amount of work into doing something completely idiotic. And I thought Still It Bang was just perfect, really. And I did try to get it, but he went with... Uh, Nucleus, was it? I can't remember who he went with, but he went with that. I would have liked to have put that out. I would have liked to have put Toy Town out as well. I, at the time, I thought it was a great track and it might have been bad for the label, but maybe it would have not been quite so derided. I don't know. Because it, it matters what... When you put something out on a label, it matters what it's surrounded by. Some labels can do some things that other labels can't. Like if I put out a dark, downbeat, down-tempo track on Night Force, people would be like, oh, that's okay, it's Night Force, they're weird. You know, but I don't think other labels could do that because you have to, you know, it's the way it's the way the label looks. So I guess that. Um, but I mean, other than that, it's like obvious stuff. Everything Hyperon Experience ever did. Everything Messiah ever did. Everything NRG ever did. Everything Ace ever did. All of those I would have loved on my label. And I'm doing my best to get them now. <laughs> <laughs> this is Slip Matt and you're listening to Raw, the 90s rave podcast. So what's your tune 101? Rave tunes that you just think they need to be shut away and left there forever. Oh, people are going to hate me because a lot of them are ones that everyone loves. Like uh, One Tribe. God, I hate that track. I mean, it's brilliant. The line, I can't even remember. Do you know the one I mean? Yeah, that's it um, was it One Tribe featuring Gem. What have you done? What? Yeah, yeah. I, just, I just don't like it. I, and I'm not saying it's bad. This is an important distinction that a lot of people get confused about. There's not liking a thing and a thing being bad. One Tribe is a very good record. I just don't like it and I don't want to hear it. It just doesn't do anything for me. Uh, I, I don't like um, Valley of the Shadows very much, 31 seconds. Long dark it's just a bit overplayed, uh, but, isn't it? Yeah, and again, I liked it at the time, and I think it's a, it's an absolute classic. Andy C is one of the few um, producers out there who has revolutionised the scene multiple times. Like most people, most people don't even do that once. He's done it three times, as far as I can tell. He did it with Valley of the Shadows. He did it with that one that was in triplet time. I can't remember what that was. Body rock. And I can't remember the third one because I'm old and my brain doesn't work. But I know there's times that what he has done has vastly changed the whole landscape. But I just don't like 31 seconds. Every time it comes on, I'm like, oh, God, please stop. Please stop. I don't want to hear that anymore. 
Um, and I'm not that keen on Baby D. Let me be your fantasy, to be honest. Oh, fair enough. I know, I know, I know. Everyone loves that track, and I speak to Floyd and Asen, and I know, you know, I don't want to offend them if they see this. I love you guys, but I just, I don't, I don't get on with it. I just don't like it. I never, I didn't even like it when it first came out, and that's a bit weird for me because I, I love things like um, Shades of Rhythm. They did a big vocal piano track, and I thought that was great. But I don't know. Something about "Let Me Be Your Fantasy" just rubbed me the wrong way. It always has. I think it's probably because it was like a it was a real nightclub tune, was it? It wasn't really a rave tune. It was a handbags on the dance floor sort of where you. I suppose, but like Sesame Street, it got that afterwards. Oh, Sesame Street! I can't fucking stand that track. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to talk more about Sesame's Treat in, in episode two, but we are coming towards the end of uh, episode one of this uh, Raw 90s Raid podcast interview with uh, Lunacy, the Night Force rec- Records legend. Just before we do go, uh, at the end of this episode, I want to ask you, you know, Happy Hardcore was arguably bigger than Jungle for a while, and that was down partly to, to your work with Night Force in the, in the mid-90s. Why do you think that was? What was it about that euphoria that people loved so much in a way that they didn't love Jungle at that point? I think part of it is just they like the happy vibe and the happy drugs. And Jungle and Drum and Bass had yet to find its sound. Hardcore found its sound real quick because SMD had already laid down the formula. Uh, Whereas Jungle and Drum and Bass were more like um, just starting to learn what they were doing. You know, if you look at the stuff down then, like Big Booyah and 31 Seconds are quite different. You know, Rank Records and what um, Ram Records were doing. Very different. But Night Force and Impact, not that different in style, you know. Night Force and Slamming Vinyl, not that different. Like, we were all on the same kind of path. So, Hardcore found its roots and strength real quick. Jungle and Drum and Bass took a bit longer. But history will show that Jungle and Drum and Bass did a far better job of finding somewhere stable to start from. Whereas Hardcore just ate itself, really. Ran around in circles. (laughs) Uh, and by 1997, you were you were gone from the hardcore scene. Why was that? And, and how did you feel about leaving that behind at that point? Well, I threw all my toys out of the pram and said, oh, I don't like what's happening. I'm not doing it anymore, basically. Um, that was because uh, everything went kick drummy and I, I liked breakbeats. So that was part of it. Part of it was technology was progressing and it frightened me. I didn't want to do what everybody else was doing. And I also didn't know how. Like I was hearing what, uh, next generation was starting to do and what essential platinum was starting to do and i was like i don't know how to do that that's not what i do you know and we're going to be left behind and part of it was just that i was depressed and didn't have the mental capacity to move on and start fighting that battle like it's a battle to ha- when the change comes you have to fight to go with it because it means you've got to leave what you know behind and start doing stuff you don't know i would have had to have learned how to record live vocals and I didn't know how to do that. But worse, I was too stubborn and exhausted to even learn it. So instead, I just sulked. And that didn't work. <laughs> do you think there's, do you think there's anything that anybody could have done to have prevented where hardcore eventually died and ended up? I like, I've got, I like, I like this idea that... you know, it, So in the mid-90s, there was a, a load of jungle people came together to our, to sort of talk about General Levy and their stand upon that. I love the idea that in Happy Hardcore, there could have been a group of uh, producers or DJs that come together to go, guys, we're really fucking this up and we need to do something about it. But there were there were big hardcore meetings. This would have been, I think this was around the time, it would have been after Chris left, but there were big hardcore meetings. They did happen. 
Well, they didn't. Sounded, they didn't they sounded a bit Sopranos like, but you know. The tr- the trouble is, um, I don't know about the general Levi thing, but I think it's a question of numbers. If you have five hundred people all in a scene and fifty of them get together to discuss a thing, whatever their result is, only matters so much because there's four hundred and fifty other people still doing their thing. With hardcore, it was a lot less people, and uh, at the risk of sounding bitter or something, which I'm not, but I think a lot of them were much more self-interested and self-motivated. So there's not much point in having a meeting when everybody's only interested. Like I know for a fact things were discussed and everyone decided on stuff, and then everyone fucked off and did their own thing anyway. <laughs> so there's nothing. You know that, I mean? So there's like, nothing that could have been done in your in, in your mind. There's nothing that could have been done by any one individual. If everybody had have put aside their foolishness, it could have been fixed. But that's the world, isn't it? If everyone put aside their foolishness now, the world would be a paradise. But they're not going to, because here we are. So I, I, mean, I used to be part of it. I did that all for one thing when I tried to get all the labels to work together. Before that, I did the Just For You thing with just another label where we tried to all work together. And... I don't think that works. Like I was saying earlier, I, it sounds cynical, but what I think you need is a financial motivation where everyone benefits to work in the same way. And that's how I feel about conspiracy theories as well, incidentally. When people say, oh, they are trying to destroy things. I don't think there's a big group of millionaires all getting together and going, Wah-ha-ha, we no. will do this because we're evil. But I do think there's a whole bunch of selfish individuals that want to get as much money as possible. And so their interests align automatically. They don't even have to talk to each other. You're listening to Raw. <laughs> this is uh, the 90s Raid podcast. Tom Latcham and Chrissy Richards. So that's it for the first half of Raw's exclusive interview with breakbeat hardcore legend Lunacy of Night Force Records. You can hear the second part next week. If you're able to spare a few quid so we can improve our recording kit and can continue to bring you quality content, that would be amazing. You can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. We are also on all your social media channels. Search for the 90s rave podcast. Laters.